we thought that we're, we're probably going to spend two weeks on Amos because it's a little bit longer, and there's some meaty stuff at the end. Not to say the stuff at the front end is not meaty, but um, we thought it might warrant two weeks. So what we've tried to do is lay out uh, the, the whole book on the front end here, and then we'll remind all of us about it again next week. But as you can see uh, there at beginning chapter one, you have the introduction, and then you have a catalog of judgments upon a variety of nations. Um, and uh, then he moves to the, the bulk of the book, which is a case. It's like a, a legal case God is making against Israel. And remember, when we say Israel in this context, we mean the nice. northern kingdom of uh, the two, uh, the two uh, kingdoms that separated after Solomon had been king. And then at the end of the book, there's an extended discussion I would call it an extended discussion of the day of the Lord describing the judgment of God. And we'll talk more about that uh, next week. So this week, our hope is to cover all of this, plus the first part there, God's case against Israel. And then we'll leave the day of the Lord discussion to next week. So we're also counting on everybody to be reading the book um, um, try, try to read it each day as we have uh, recommended um, from the beginning. And um, what's happening? Nothing. Go ahead. Okay. Just keep talking. Uh, yeah. So, so sometimes if we might have to kind of skim over some things, you know, we're just, we're counting on that you're reading it at home and kind of uh, walking through it yourself. And we just try to tell you um, maybe stuff that you couldn't, uh, you know, find for yourself and just, um, it, it just, it, things that we think are interesting in, uh, in the book. So you want to talk about dating? Yeah, so, so just to let you know, this time we actually have a pretty good idea of when the book is dated. Um, so you'll see, in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, because there were two Joashes, there was a king in Israel named Joash and a king in Judah named Joash, and they're pretty close together. I'll explain that in a moment, but it's not critical. Uh, you can see there the dates on your on your outline for Uzziah and uh, the dates for Jeroboam. This is Jeroboam II, um, and so they overlap quite a bit. We see we know also that Jotham, Uzziah's son, had to take over for him as a regent in Judah around 750 B.C. That's because Uzziah... Uh, got leprosy and had to move out of the palace and out of the city. Um, we do also have archaeological evidence that there was an earthquake, earthquake around 760 BC. So probably around 762 BC is the dating we're looking at here. So I just want to also make the comment that if 762 is when um, this prophecy was given, the events that it prophesies, um, as far as Israel is concerned anyway, are about um, 40 years into the future. Okay. <clears throat> so a little, bit, <clears throat> a little bit of background. Some of this you can read about in, um, in 2 Kings and some other places, but... Uh, by and large, at this point, 
you can see it was a time of relative strength and prosperity for Israel in particular, the northern kingdom. They uh, were expanding their borders. They were uh, pretty, pretty well secure in, uh, in their position under Jeroboam. Um, but also Judah had a time also of relative strength and prosperity. They also were seeing a time of, they had, had recently come out of a time of religious revival, uh, following the ministries of Elijah and Elisha that we read about in Kings. Elisha dies under the, um, under the administration of Jeroboam's father, who actually weeps at Elisha's graveside. But Assyria is still looming in the background. Assyria had been, you'll recall, we've talked about this before, but it had been an international power, then it had a time of decline, and then it's now beginning to rise to power again. As I said, Israel and Judah had a time of uh, religious revival, but now they're starting to slip back into following the worship of Canaanite deities. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, I also thought I would talk briefly about these two kings. Um, Jeroboam reigned 41 years in Israel. We're told that he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah. That's in 2 Kings 14. Uh, in, also in 2 Kings 14, it's, the, the Bible says that the Lord, right, Yahweh, saved Israel by the hand of Jeroboam. Um, he also recovered Damascus for Israel. So he actually took over Damascus at one point for Israel. So this is what I'm talking about when I say he extended the borders. Um, Uzziah became king in uh, the 27th year of Jeroboam's reign. So Jeroboam had already been in Israel as king for quite a time when Uzziah became king. He became king at age 16 after his father Amaziah was assassinated. Uh, his father was assassinated because he instigated a war with Israel in the north. And um, he had been successful against Edom and was arrogant about that, and then, he, uh, and then he started a war with Israel, which he lost. Not only did he lose, he lost really badly. So Jeroboam's father, whose name was Joash, this is where it gets confusing, Joash of Israel, not only defeated and captured Uzziah's father, but he also tore down part of the city wall of Jerusalem and entered the temple and walked away with the silver and the gold implements used in the temple as a punishment. And you can also read about that in 2 Kings 14. Um, also, Uzziah's, not only was Uzziah's father assassinated, but his grandfather had also been assassinated. His grandfather's name was Joash of Judah. And he was assassinated because he had killed some priests and he had allowed Canaanite worship in Judah. So there was a time, you know, Uzziah, when he becomes king, he's young. Uh, there's been political upheaval. The last two kings, his father and grandfather, had both been assassinated. And, um, and there had been some revival, but 
uh, also some also some uh, backsliding on the part of Israel, and uh, this sort of sets the stage for Israel and Judah. And I would also say that Uzziah was um, he, he was quite a warrior, and um, he conquered so much land, so much territory, or I guess re- retook so much territory in the south around Judah that um, he he made it even to the border with Egypt, and he made a real name for himself in other um, in other territories and other countries as well. So both of these kings were um, quite big name warriors. So, um, so this time, I guess, of, of expansion uh, brought some, uh, some stability to the area, and it brought wealth to the area. And so um, that's just something of what we're going to see as the backdrop for Amos. Okay. Okay, so Amos begins, the Lord roars in Zion. I think that's Aslan, but but still, (laughs) the Lord roars. So he roars from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is set up from the beginning as the place of uh, the worship of God's name. And there are things happening that God has something to say about. And so um, Amos begins like this, um, and it's it's pretty ominous, but um, these are his words. The Lord roars from Zion and from Jerusalem. He utters his voice and everything in his path starts to starts to wither. So um, God is like a roaring lion and he's ready to pounce. Can I go? Yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted us to uh, have a look at this map a little bit. Uh, so as we, as we look in um, the first couple of chapters, uh, Amos speaks about, he, he speaks some oracles against a number of the nations that surround Israel and Judah. And I think that as we um, look at each one and um, talk about, you know, why they're under God's judgment, it can give you some kind of um, idea about the kinds of frictions that happen in that area and why the kings of Israel and Judah have to be vigilant at the you know, sort of power politics that are going on in their area. So, um, I also want the map to kind of show us uh, a little bit of Amos's prophetic uh, preaching strategy, because um, what he does, if we were to kind of look at these, uh, look at these nations one at a time, um, he starts with Damascus over here. So he starts with uh, uh, Aram and Damascus. I'm not getting it. I think that's it right there. So he starts with Damascus, and then he goes. Oops, where's the arrow? Okay, then he goes here to the Philistines, right? And then he goes up here against Tyre, okay? And then he goes across to Edom to condemn Edom. And then he condemns Ammon. And then he condemns Moab, okay? So that's six so far. And since Amos has gone um, to Israel, to make all of these judgments and pronounce all of these condemnations, the Israelites are listening and like so far so good, you know, so there's six so far. And then he points to Judah and he condemns Judah. And so the Israelites who are listening, they're thinking, okay, and that's the seventh. Yes. It's our neighbor to the South and that's all seven. And then Amos gives this surprise prophecy all of a sudden he hones right into Israel, like it's a surprise ape that they weren't um, expecting. So um, 
Uh, I also want to uh, just show you, John mentioned that um, Jeroboam II expanded the territories from um, Low Hamath, which is all the way up here, okay, and then um, all the way like down here to the Arabah. So he, he took all this land here, and then Uzziah in the south took all the way over here um, to the border with Egypt and all the way you know, down here to this gulf. So you can see that it spanned quite, uh, quite a lot of territory. Okay. Should I talk about the worship shrines now? No. Okay. No. All right. Uh, so, if we look at um, if we look at the text, um, he starts with Damascus, and there's this little formula for three and for four, right? The transgressions, the pasha, for three and for four, and, and each one, even Judah, even Israel, they all get the same formula. Um, so Damascus, um, what were they doing? What did they do wrong? Um, what uh, what are they condemned for? So uh, Amos says that they they drove like a threshing sledge over Gilead. So Gilead is a section that is um, on the other side of the Jordan. Um, I, I think right about here. Okay, and um, both Aram and um, Ammon are complicit in this. All right, because because um, the part that we're talking about is between Aram and Ammon's territory. So it's, it's somewhere just like around here. All right. So there's war against Israel. Um, there are hostilities and um, there are probably uh, war crimes that are happening. Um, and so there's judgment that comes against Aram, against Damascus. Their gates will be broken. Their ruler will be overthrown, and they'll go into exile. And by the way, this the fulfillment of this particular prophecy, you can find it in 2 Kings 16 and verse 9. Do you have that? Mm-hmm. You want to read it? Well. Okay. No. Okay, I'll go into no, the Philistines. Well. 13.7 says, For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like dust at threshing. That's in, in 2 Kings 13. And then in 16, got to get there, 16 verse 9. Um, <clears throat> 16.9 says, And the and the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus, took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he killed Rezin. So that's the fulfillment of the um, prophecy against uh, Damascus. All right, we'll move a little faster on these, uh, on these next ones. Um, the Philistines are the next ones um, that are mentioned, and a number of the cities there are the Philistine Cities, Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, etc. So there were five big Philistine cities. Only four of them are mentioned here. But um, basically, it sounds like they're involved in the capturing and subjugation of people. Like they're going and capturing cities on purpose to, to capture their people and sell them into slavery. So um, maybe these were Israelites that are being sold into slavery and um, possibly they're being sold to Edom. All right. Most likely. Uh, the next one is Tyre. Tyre is up on the on the coast up here. It's a, a city state. Um, they thought they were almost impregnable. It's uh, it's it's a they have an interesting um, defense system. But um, they also are probably raiding cities and um, and and uh, selling people um, slave trade. Uh, also, 
it, with Tyre, they have violated a treaty between Tyre, um, specifically Hiram of Tyre, oh, and Solomon. Okay. So there is well, a, it's called the Covenant of Brotherhood. Go ahead. That's what I was going to say. Okay. So it's, yeah, in, in Amos, he says a covenant of brotherhood, but it seems like what it's referring to is the, the treaty that Solomon had with Hiram in 1 Kings 5, verse 12. They make a, a treaty. And in uh, 1 Kings 9, uh, uh, Solomon actually refers to Hiram as a brother. Um, so there was a longstanding positive relationship between Israel and Tyre. Um, even even going back to even looking back at Ahab's marriage to Jezebel, which wasn't a good thing because Jezebel brought paganism with her. But the there there was supposedly there had been good relations and there were supposed to be good relations, and yet now Tyre was violating that. So as we go on um, with Edom, I don't think we need to spend too much time on this because we saw this in Obadiah. But there are crimes of violating. Um, what we might call family ties, you know, um, stifling of compassion against your brother. There's constant anger and rage at your brother. So again, this kind of brings up the Jacob and Esau story that we talked about in Obadiah. Um, in Ammon, they are judged for um, um, an attempt to exterminate the population of, um, of, of different places where they were raiding. So war crimes again, and um, they're told that they'll be attacked and destroyed and exiled. Um, if we move into, um, into Moab, into chapter two, uh, he talks about the desecration of the bones of a king. Um, this particular king, king, the king of Edom. Yes. Um, you know, Edom is bad. I think we kind of talked about that, but this particular king of Edom seems to have been an ally of Israel. Um, I think in two Kings one and two Kings three, we see that, um, that this king, together with uh, King Joram and Jehoshaphat, they all go up um, in a war together. And so he's, you know, collaborating with them. And um, so the, the um, Moabite king uh, burned this king's bones. And um, so they're, uh, they're condemned for that on Israel's part. And, and probably a lot of these, um, the things that are being uh, mentioned should be seen as... Uh, Defiance, defiance against God's uh, covenant promises and God's covenant promises to Abraham and to the descendants uh, of, of Abraham through uh, Jacob. So just as we said when we were looking at Obadiah, you know, to understand that theologically as violations and rejection of God's covenant with Abraham, we see the same thing here with uh, Moab's rebellion and the burning of the, the king's bones, or um, Ammon's uh, attempts to take advantage of uh, Israel when weak. So the next, uh, next ones are Judah. And Judah, um, the Lord gives them exactly the same formula uh, for three transgressions and for four. I will not turn away. I will not relent. Um, and Judah is actually uh, worse. Judah has broken the covenant. Um, literally, the mm -hmm. Old Testament says that they broke the Torah of Yahweh. So they broke the covenant. They broke faith with God. And um, where it talks about their lies have led them astray in verse 4, that probably is a reference to idols. So they're involved in idol worship. 
and um, their punishment is going to be the same as the others. God says that he'll send a fire upon Judah, and it will devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. But their time is not yet. It's not yet. So then the eighth nation God turns to then is Israel. And so now we have um, kind of a... Um, kind of an overview of Israel's sins and what God is going to do, uh, what we're going to see for the rest of the book. Um, but for in the rest of chapter two is sort of like this overview of what God's going to say to Israel. Go ahead. Okay, so he lays out um, some basic charges against Israel. And uh, as you can see there in verse six, you have uh, these things like taking advantage of the poor, the righteous poor. Um, right? Selling them for a pair of sandals. Uh, you also see uh, abuse of the poor. It's kind of like taking advantage of your brother and not loving your brother while saying you love God, right? While worshiping the Lord. So this is detestable in God's sight. We see similar uh, similar kind of language in the New Testament, right? How can you say you love your brother um, when you when you treat him poorly? Um, and how can you worship God? This is not of God. Also, though, uh, Israel's sins should also be seen in terms of um, broader false worship. It's probably a good way to see it. So false worship in two ways. One way is by uh, acting unrighteously, not acting like the people of God, not following God's way. That's what the Torah is, right? God's way that has been laid out through the law uh, for what God's people should look like. Second way is by actually engaging in false worship. That is by incorporating the worship of Canaanite deities or incorporating Canaanite worship practices and implements into the worship of the Lord. And this is really what we see taking place in Israel. As uh, I think we've mentioned on that very first week when we did the overview, you'll recall when the north, the northern tribes, when Israel separated from Judah, uh, Jeroboam the first set up two uh, two major centers for worship of the Lord, so that the people from the north would not go to Jerusalem, where uh, where the seed of David was reigning. And so that was at Dan in the north and Bethel in the south. Um, Now, later, it it evolved into other regional areas where people could worship the Lord as well in uh, Israel with uh, Gilgal and then also Beersheba down south. Um, So we have then... What, you, what we call syncretism. That's just a fancy way of saying blending the worship of the true worship of God with worship of false gods. You have this taking place then in Israel in the north. Um, and we can read about this starting in Judges. You read about it, but then it, it carries through the books of uh, Kings and Chronicles. And, and just to, you know, be, be fair to the folks in Israel, um, these different places, um, Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, those were places that already had a history of um, sort of spiritual significance. So like Bethel is the place where um, um, Jacob uh, had his dream of angels, you know, going up and down uh, to heaven. You know, he called it the house of God there. And Beersheba is a place where um, Abraham had stopped, you know, and, and I think dug a well there. Um, Gilgal was a place where they set up a, 
um, an altar to God right after the people had crossed the Jordan going back into Canaan. So these places did have some um, worship significance to them, but um, once the center was set up at Jerusalem, that was the legitimate place for the worship of God, and that's what God had said. That's where he put his name to be worshipped, not at any of these other places. And as you read through um, First and Second Kings, um, when you look at the assessment of each one of the kings, this will come up that, you know, they, they did okay, but they still didn't tear down the high places. Or they did okay, but they still followed in the way of um, um, Jeroboam. Jeroboam. Of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who, who was the one who set up the golden calves at Dan and Bethel. So we read, we read in, in, we read about this, through, like I said, throughout Kings, where they have high places, and we also hear about Asherah poles. So we thought we probably need to introduce this at some point in our discussion because this is in the background. It's kind of like a backdrop to a lot of what's going on in the Minor Prophets. Um, uh, a major problem in both Israel and Judah is that they have they not driven the people out as they were commanded, and they have allowed themselves to be polluted by the religions of the peoples of that land, the Canaanite peoples. Um, obviously, Solomon also intermarrying with women allowed that. Uh, Ahab marrying a woman who was a follower of Baal, uh, same thing, right? She had court prophets for Baal, not for the Lord. Um, and what you had then in, in Israel and in Judah, um, but in this case, Israel, the north, is you had prophets who would say they're speaking for the Lord, for Yahweh, for the God of Israel, but they're incorporating um, things like Asherah poles and devotion to Baal and other things like that into, um, into their worship of Yahweh, of the, the one true God. So what are Asherah poles? Well, we don't know exactly. Um, in, in some places, it, it looks like they might have been sacred trees, like actual living trees, maybe planted on the hilltop in a local community where people would build a little altar and they would climb, you know, you climb up the mountain and you'd be up at sort of closer to God up there. So that's a um, high place. Yeah. In fact, even today in certain parts of like Eastern Europe, for example, you have churches built on the top of the highest hill in the area and people will climb up the hill to go worship God. It's kind of interesting. Um, this, like we said, it was appropriated by the Canaanite peoples. Um, they might have been carved poles too, though. There are places where they're described this way. So if you think about um, other religions, you think uh, of things like totem poles, you know, sacred uh, poles that, that function as a sacred center for the community, both spiritual and maybe um, social. social as well. Uh, Maypoles in Germanic uh, lands uh, as well have, have been speculated to function in some way like a religious pole. Um, notice I've written there, it, we're not sure exactly what the purpose of a pole is, uh, beside a, beside an altar, but it it certainly represents the female deity Asherah, which we'll talk about in just a, a few moments. Um, but it also might be representative of life or of creation, maybe the community strength. And then I've written there a Latin word, axis mundi. It just means the center of the earth, almost like the axis of the earth. Um, so we see this even um, in in many 
pagan religions. And so uh, this, this was incorporated into is, Israeli worship. Uh, on this slide, we just, I just put this on here to show this is uh, Assyrian. This was the Assyrian tree of life. And you can see those are Assyrian priests uh, there on that relief, um, you know, offering uh, sacrifices to the tree of life. Uh, this, this right here is a, um, piece of an ivory box on the left here, uh, that has a picture of Asherah, um, identified. And then this also is a, a small little, um, idol of Asherah found in, uh, Phoenicia. So again, Asherah was con- conceived of as the, the female, deity, the the wife of El, the high god, um, or the consort of El. But over time, she comes to be seen as the wife of Baal. Um, Baal was probably the most popular Canaanite deity. Um, A lot of a lot of times you'll hear the word Baals or Baals like, as if there are multiple gods because it, it, the name Baal came to be associated with sort of a class of deity. But originally Baal was uh, a lesser deity then elevated to being the primary deity of the region. He was um, conceived of as being a storm god um, and uh, had power over the weather and so, obviously, an important deity for agrarian, you know, for people who are trying to grow crops. Um, he was also associated with the bull. And so, I've included a picture of a, um, uh, of a, a, a golden calf that was found in Phoenicia that might be like what, uh, is probably like what the Israelites would have had made and set up at Bethel and Dan. Right. Okay, the second part of chapter two, then, uh, as God's sort of summarizing his case against Israel, he reminds them of his past provision. I think it's one I want to say something. Yeah, Go I got a lot to say, but I'll keep it short. Um, so, as God is talking <clears throat> through, um, you know, reminding them of his provision for them in the past, his case against them is that, or I, I guess accusation against them is that they have no gratitude. For, uh, for God, that God had gone before them to destroy the Canaanites, that they had been like, like giants, and um, God had cleared the land for them, and he had destroyed them completely. There's an expression there. He had destroyed their root and their fruit, <laughs> so completely uprooted them. He had freed Israel from Egypt. He led them through the desert, and then he chose some of them. He allowed them to serve him as priests, to be close to him, to set them apart, to sanctify them, and others to prophesy and to minister to him. So he talks about the prophet and the Nazarite, um, uh, that they would be used by God to do his work among the nation. That's like a, a privilege, a blessing of God. And yet Israel treated this with contempt. And um, God says that Israel corrupted the Nazarites to break their vow, so, you know, to drink wine. Um, And they prohibited the prophets from speaking God's word. They tried to shut them down. This was uh, a trend. (laughs) It seems like a trend in Israel. And it's a little bit of a preview to Amos's shutdown, uh, which we're going to talk about a little bit next week. 
So the upshot of it is that Israel doesn't care to hear from their greatest benefactor and they're, they're ungrateful and God finds this behavior intolerable that he's, he's weighed down by it and he will throw them off. And he says that a day is coming for retribution and for punishment and nobody will escape it. And that takes us to the end of chapter two. Okay. Okay, so chapter 3 begins with the, the, the phrase, hear the word of the Lord. So he's introducing his, uh, his case against Israel. And um, as I've said there in, in 3.2, he says, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth, right? And then in 3.6, in the second part, he says, um, if a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? So here you have a reminder of God's He's, he's called them, he's made a covenant with them, he's set them apart, he has a plan for humanity, right? All of those things we talked about before. And he is sovereign. And, uh, and so he reminds them of that at the front end. Um, also in chapter three, um, kind of the first, uh, first half, I guess, of the chapter, uh, there's like a catalog of these of rhetorical questions, right? So you can see there, um, uh, and they build up ominously, right? Um, so do two walk together unless they're in agreement? I think that's a, a reference to the, the covenant. You know, they made an agreement, um, but now that's been broken, right? Um, he talks about uh, the lion roaring in the forest. Well, the lion has roared, hasn't he? And he has prey, which means to Israel that if the Lord is the lion, well, then Israel is the prey, Um um, when it talks about the bird and the snare, the bird is obviously Israel, and the snare is the Lord. He's, he's got them in his clutch. Um, the trumpet that's blown, right? Um, are you not afraid? That, of course they're afraid, because the trumpet means that disaster is coming. Um, and um, if the trumpet announces disaster, or the word there is raw, is evil, um, they should be very afraid. Because the Lord is responsible for it, as he says it. He's bringing them, he's bringing this on them. Um, but uh, we want to also point out that the Lord is also merciful to them. Um, isn't it merciful that he's giving them a warning? Isn't it merciful that he sends his prophets? Um, isn't it merciful that um, he says, uh, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets, so he reveals to them what's coming, all right? And so Israel needs to heed. They need to heed. Um, God kind of like exposes Israel even to the pagan nations. There's this repeat of the word um, um, temples or um, mansions. Um, and he says that, um, uh, you know, whereas um, a lot of people have things in their palace, like, you know, maybe treasures or something, but Israel in its palace, they have greed, they have violence, by the way, it's the word Hamas, they store up violence in their, um, in their temple, in their palaces, and these palaces will be plundered, they'll barely escape um, if at all, and most will not escape as he, he has that very scary, um, that's very scary verse that you'll escape the way that, um, uh, you know, uh, um, two legs or the piece of an ear, maybe from a, a sheep escapes from the lion's mouth. That's how you'll escape like barely at all. Maybe, maybe you won't at all. And on that day, again, it's the day, um, 
the main transgression that will be punished is the, the altars of Bethel. So again, it's false worship. And then there's this repetition of the word for house. So um, Bethel, which means house of God. So Bethel will be punished. And then the house of the winter will be punished. The house of the summer will be punished. And the houses of ivory will be pun- will perish. And all the great houses will come crashing down. They'll all come to an end. So the summer house, the winter house, this is kind of a reference to, to the kind of luxury that they were living in. While other people, like the needy, were just being trampled and oppressed by them. So that takes us to the end of chapter 3. So it's kind of like, you know, this, you, you call this the house of God, Bethel, the house of God, but there won't be a house left, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, again, a charge against their false worship. In, in chapter 4, um, Amos is not very uh, politically correct or sensitive <laughs> to uh, the women when he, uh, he just calls them a bunch of fat cows. Um, I mean, that's... <laughs> He calls them cows of Bashan, uh, and he says, "You're going to be, you know, you're sitting in your luxury and you're ordering, you're ordering your husbands around or your servants That's the real around." Problem. Uh, but you're ordering your your servants around, and here's the thing: you're going to be carried away with a with a hook, right? Like a like imagine a nose ring being carried into slavery. That's the imagery he gives there, and why? Because of their false worship in verses four and five. Right. Enter Bethel and transgress and Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes every three days. Offer thank offerings, proclaim free offerings, make them know. For so you love to do, you sons of Israel. In other words, you love to bring these false worships, but they mean nothing because your heart's not in it. And it's not like he's inviting them to false worship. It's like he's standing outside the sanctuary and saying this. It's kind of like a taunt. It's like, yeah, go on, go on up there. And instead of go on and worship, he says, go on and transgress. Go to Gilgal and, and transgress even more, right? So it's kind of like a, a taunt song. Okay, and then he goes into, um, into a part where uh, he talks about some of the covenant curses that are starting to come into play, but Israel is so far gone, they don't even recognize it. And so God says some pretty obvious things that are happening that they don't even recognize as a judgment of God. So um, these covenant curses were supposed to prompt them into repentance and obedience, but Israel hardly noticed. It's just like they were a little bit, they they were kind of inconvenienced, right? They found a way to, to work around it. So, um, so for example, he said, I sent you famine, so no bread in your cities and drought and plague and blight. And he says, yet you did not return to me. And then he attacked all their crops. Like we saw in Joel, their fields, their vineyards, figs, and olive trees. And then God went all out and he sent pestilence just like in Egypt. They didn't think like, oh, you know, this has happened before. Why? You know, pestilence like in Egypt the sword and war. Um, he said the stench of your camp, maybe from dead bodies and still the phrase yet you did not return to me. And then he punished them like Sodom and Gomorrah in some ways that we, we don't know for sure. And yet still there's no recognition and no prompt to um, no, no response to this prompt to repent. And so then there's this very scary line that I know you've heard before prepare to meet your God. O Israel. Prepare to meet your God. All right. And he says, he says, and I am the Lord, the creator, right? I'm the creator of everything. I could, I could 
prevent all of these things. I could bless you if you will turn to me, right? So I'm the Lord as creator, and I'm the one who's going to judge. I tread on the high places. In other words, you know, I can, I can stomp them down if I wish. And then uh, in 13b, we have the, the first of three doxologies. It says, uh, uh, For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man and earth's thoughts, who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high place of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. That's a phrase that you'll see again. Last slide, just so you know. <laughs> so, in, so in chapter 5 then. Chapter 5 starts a lament for Israel. Um, it's like before anything's even happened, Amos is already lamenting what will happen and what he can see um, by the Lord's inspiration that will happen. So what will happen? The house of Israel um, is going to fall and it's going to fall and not be able to get up again. Uh, so uh, it's going to be decimated. This is the future of Israel. Um, and yet God says to them in chap- in verse 4, seek me and live. Isn't this grace? They could still seek him. And he calls them to repentance. Seek me and live. Don't go to Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't go to Beersheba. Don't go there. That's not living. Don't go there. Gilgal will go into exile. Bethel will come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. So the Lord is not in any of those places, right? So he's inviting them to seek him. This goes back to the covenant um, uh, reiteration in Deuteronomy where um, he says, you know, I put before you today um, life and death, cursing and blessing. Choose life. Choose blessing, right? Choose the Lord. So again, Amos is calling them back to that kind of uh, that kind of repentance. So um, good versus evil, life versus death, blessing versus curse. Um, unless you come to the Lord, you're not choosing life or goodness or blessing. Okay. There's another doxology here in verse eight. Uh, again, that God is the Lord over creation, over constellations, over day and night, earth and sea, and also over destruction. He's also Lord over that. Um, because, uh, because of their injustice, um, there are a couple of curses here that are interesting in verse 11. These are called futility curses. Like you'll work hard, it'll be for nothing. All right. So he says, you built houses of stone, but you won't live in them. And you have wonderful vineyards, but you'll never drink their wine. You'll, you'll never profit or benefit from them. And this is because of their sins, because of their transgressions. They're corrupt. They take bribes. They're oppressive to the needy. And it's just an, an evil time. What, what more is there to say? And yet he says, seek good and not evil, so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. That's the solution. Hate evil, love the good. And it may be, this is kind of like Joel, kind of like Jonah, right? It may be, like, who knows? Maybe the God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And so there's the tiny glimmer that there might be a remnant left, um, that God in his grace will still preserve some. But in the meantime, there's wailing coming. There's a continuous lamentation. Alas, alas, there'll be wailing in the city, wailing in the country, 
wailing in the vineyards. And there's another ominous phrase, I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. So that phrase, I will pass through your midst, another place where that appears is when the Lord passes through the midst of the Egyptians um, at the time of the death of the uh, firstborn. I will pass through your midst. So that's uh, not something to look forward to for Israel. Okay, and the last thing I guess I would say is just as a, as a preview. So um, you see the word social justice on there. Uh, that's something of a buzzword these days, and people get uh, nervous with it, but they really shouldn't. Here, uh, what Amos is doing is he's talking about uh, there should be justice that reflects God's word, right? When he says justice at the city gate, he says that twice. That's where that's where the elders in the community would um, – would make decisions based on Torah, right? Based on the law of God and uh, decide cases between people. And what he says is there is no justice there, but there should be. And this is why, why uh, he's um, bringing his charge against them. So moving forward uh, to next week, then we're going to, we're going to continue with uh, Amos's charge against Israel uh, and, and really in the context of his discussion of the day of the Lord with some visions and some broader discussion about not only the day of the Lord coming on Israel in the relatively near future, i.e. within a generation, right, 40 years, but also even possibly the day of the Lord off in the future as well. And so we'll pick up here next week.